Sponsored by Marriage Supply. That is a company that Matt and I own, and it sells sex toys. Now, you may be thinking, (laughs) why would Matt and Toby get into sex toys? Well, let me tell you, we're sex experts. A lot of people don't know that. Right, Matt? Yep. We won a qualified. We've won awards for our expertise in sex. No, no, and and, uh, we are not experts. All we know is that uh, it's nice to spice up the bedroom a little bit uh, with your spouse. So at MarriageSupply.com. Uh, that's what we're about. We're about uh, great products and having a great time. So go to marriage. I say it this way, marriagesupply.com. That's right. I grew up avoiding, you know, all sexuality was <clears throat> hidden from me and you pause the movie and all that kind right. of stuff. So I always Turn knew it was crazy and bad. And then I was as an adult, I traveled the world and I, you know, was in a Christian band. So obviously we couldn't get prostitutes or anything. And yeah, you know, and I couldn't even, I was never going to even go in the porn shop with the truck stops there. You see, you know what I mean? Like yeah, I those barns, I, I saw them at like every day, but I would yeah. never in a million years go in one of those things. You know what I'm saying? Well, so, I, I do remember, however, and uh, at Pops, in Sauget, Illinois. We got called- takeout from a strip club because- <laughs> one time because there was no other food in miles of walking distance. Yes, I admit it. But there was not. We got chicken I fingers know. from a strip club once. Yes, I saw a little bit it- of something when I was in there. It happened. You saw a boob? I did. I was it- just picking up now- the food, though. The funniest thing, so if you've ever been to Sauget, Illinois, which we called it Sausage, Illinois, <laughs> it ain't much. And it doesn't look like a good area. And Pops, there was like, what, wasn't it like two strip clubs right there or something yeah, like that? Yeah, two right strip clubs the and a venue that was open, you know, yeah. over. And I love that open venue, all too. Night. Like, it didn't the close. The venue was open 24 hours. We, yeah. we, I mean, we'd go in there at like 3 in the morning and drink a beer. People would be in there five yeah. in the morning to start drinking and stuff like people that you know, got off the shifts at two nurses in, in and the other yeah. state they, yeah like the bartenders the bartenders in the right. state over if it's in missouri or whatever would get done working and then they would at from two to six a.m they come over to, across the border to that industrial part with two strip clubs and pops in Sauget, illinois right. and uh, across the state line and then they'd party all night but yeah so i've never you know i wouldn't go in places like that but does that mean i should never have sex toys no, no, it means you should. It means I, I could if there was only a safe, clean site to do it. And that's how I see marriage supply. It keeps me out of those truck stop porn shops to get, you know, some whatever I need. Oh, well, that's really great, man. I still, I couldn't believe it when you went to the strip club. But that food from that strip club <laughs> was, was amazing. So God, it yeah, was really good. Lord. Uh, speaking of what we should do and what we got to do, I, we are, I'm flying in two days to Seattle and we are going to record two specials. Now, I don't even know if I like calling it. We're going to record two albums. That's what I think we should call album? it. Not, I mean, this is, it's not special. It's what we do now. Well, like the so, album isn't what it is. Well, it's, it's a collection of, uh, 
music and artistic expression mm-hmm. that uh, goes beyond what has been done before. <laughs> and in this digital age, we are open to whatever we can do in new ways. Now, that also includes old albums. So we are going to film the question mm-hmm. in its entirety. And you'll be able to hear songs that we haven't even played in years. And I'm learning them still as we speak. And then our brand new album, Rub Some Dirt On It. We're going to do that one too while we are there. And so I'm really excited about it. I'm extremely nervous. We, we played with Take It Back Sunday with 4,000 people this past. I mean, I, how in the hell did I turn 45 and live through a pandemic and then I play for 4,000 people with Take It Back Sunday and then go record two albums in Seattle? I mean, that's how busy our band is. That's right. A- after a pandemic. We've it's insane. Been, yeah, yeah, no, the whole thing is kind of bizarre. It's a, it, it is kind of bizarre to look at the place and time and, and what it is, and it is a lot. And certainly albums will result from those uh, of special events that we're going to capture that yeah. will be moments or something. But I think of it like a comedy special, like you work on all this stuff, and then finally you get it all the way, and then you deliver it and you capture that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's a special event. And of course you can release that comedy special on and a CD and put it in a store and it'd be an album. Right. You know? So it'll, it'll generate an album, but we're creating our new, you know, record. It will be on vinyl. So it is a record. Yeah. But we'll yeah. have a expression. That's an album or a vinyl. And then there'll be a Spotify version of it. That'll be slightly different, but it all comes from the creation of a real, special event a thing that was going to actually happen in the world which is us together playing our best material at our best yeah that's the project that better it is and it happens to create nice video stream album video you call it a film a performance a production whatever doesn't matter yeah. what you call it but it's the thing we do the best captured in the most detail at the highest level we can make it that's all I, that that i know we can't go wrong if that's what we try to do and then how yeah, it p- turns into products whatever it turns so, out that can work too the thing that i'm really excited about is people are going to get to see us make the new record like you are going to see it and i know we'll probably do maybe a di- like you said we'll add something maybe to the spotify version or whatever but the first time you'll hear rub some dirt on it our new record will be us playing it right there in a room and that and like Every time you've ever seen records, it's oh well, they went to a studio and it was it was produced and they had this person and this and then, you know and it takes months if not longer to get everything done and to go through the whole process and everything and we're doing it in one evening. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we we'll have a crew there filming it and we'll have great sound and and we're pretty blessed to have Josh in our band and you that can really produce records and have produced records and know exactly what you're doing. But I'm really excited about that because it. It feels like the fan of Emory is going to get more uh, behind the scenes than ever before. And you'll from the comfort of your own living room. That's pretty awesome. Like yeah. being able to do that is, is really the thing that I think is most important. Like at this stage in our career, of course, I'm glad that I still get to make music and it is very enjoyable. But also the connection with our fans, like in Emoryland and everything, is just so valuable. Like that they are, really are supporting us and that we can do things like this. It's not just, hey, here's a record. We did this again. It's like, man, no, we're trying to do something new because you guys are with us and There's we're in it together. Do, yeah. So yeah, it's really valuable to me. It's cool because you say it'll be in the evening, but really we've already got it budgeted down to where I don't believe it'll take 
over two hours to right. record. It might take, we've budgeted up to three, but we don't believe that we can have the quality of yeah. focus for, for longer than that period of time. So it's yeah, all we don't preparation. Take three be lazy. <laughs> well, it's not, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to keep the mindset to do, operate the level we're going to need to be at for longer than two or three hours, you know, 45 yeah, yeah. minutes, 90 minutes. You know, that's about, those are the lengths of time where you can, we can, you can give it your all and get it all. I think we can, if we prepare right, right I think we're going to get it in that kind of single, single shot event kind of a thing. Well, um, can and I of say course we'll edit and figure, you know, figure out what to do in post-production. It's not, a, it's not a thing in exercise in, in any kind of total purity, but I think we're going to get the best we can get by creating that moment and then go from there. Well, here's something that some people know, some people don't. I think that we work our best in that structured shortened time. For example, yeah. our very first record, we recorded it in two weeks. We paid for it ourselves, and we we used every second of the day, yeah. uh, you know, there to uh, get it done. And then we wrote the entire question in one month, and then recorded it with a the lot. Now, and there's a lot of pressure right. on that. Yeah, you just so had the weeks pressure. end, and you right. got to write another album. You got to be in the studio in 30 days. You don't have any songs. Yeah. That so was that's why I'm, I'm I'm so excited about the new record because we wrote it. Uh, this month fairly quickly this month yeah. we got together once kind of played it out we got we had a taking back sunday show we went in one day early and practiced together a little bit in a, a studio space practice space but i mean you're gonna get that's why this record feels fun like when we when it was really starting to come together this past friday when we were in that practice space i was like oh this record's good yeah, it is. Wow, it's good. I'm finally hearing it, and I'm seeing what's happening. I'm I'm singing some harmonies and some you know trade off vocals with Devin. Devin's doing that with me, and we you know so it, it's really neat that the amount of time. What is the thing? It's called like, what is it? What's the thing? Uh, the where you use the time that you're given. If 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 they say hey, you got one month to do this. You you know you oftentimes will wait. Yeah, that's somebody's month. law or something. Yeah, like, like Parkinson's law. law or something. Yeah, Parkinson's yeah. law. I think you yeah. might be right. Something like that. Yeah, but that's. I mean, so in this instance, we're using every minute what we have instead of waiting. I mean, we, even some stuff still always will wait to the last minute. But that's pretty cool that there isn't any. Uh, well, let's take our time here. Or do no, we can't. We're not taking our time on anything. We're just going to get this, and then you're going to get to watch it. It's going to be pretty awesome. I, I hope. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm feeling pretty confident that we'll do really well with it. But I am nervous, but not nervous. I'm just in in that mode of create. But we got we have uh, the to to look at all of it is like um, if you zoom out, it's just this really efficient thing that it's you wouldn't have thought when you're 45 that you both have a big show, play the show the week of the recording, and be going to do a recording. And it was going to, you know, that you could do all that in a week right. or something. It's like, it, it's just the, it's, that's what I guess I understand now when you get older, you, you, you just, you get the ability to know what's important and what's not. Like I, it never was clear to me what our job was, but it, at least it results in albums that sell a lot eventually. But what is yeah. actually required to make those things and what are the best conditions to cause such a thing? Is yeah. always you never know, but the if you, I feel now that you know when you get we get into the middle part of your career, you start expanding things and requiring more and needing more, bigger yeah. budgets and all these things, but they don't really help you focus in to cut out and put high demands on yourself. It seems right. like it, it gets like it turns into comforts or something. So yeah. taking the comforts away, it, I know everybody's at the top of their game i'm not worried about anybody's voice i'm not worried there's no way anybody's gonna show up and not know a part they're just not going to 
Well, like I'll as I'll a disagree. producer. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm just saying, I know it's a big ask, but everybody, we could have alleviated the pressure, but everybody's ready to do it. So as a producer, I feel confident that nobody's going to show up and shit the bed. Yeah. And so I, I, you know, I expect that. I don't have to say, I expect it. I don't have to yell at anybody. We all, you know, you feel right. that it's a self guiding pressure. So it's been, it's been a really fun experience. I think Devin wrote one of my all time favorite Emory songs for this record. I don't know you yeah. at all. That one is just, it's man, great. that one just gets me. I'm playing bass on it. And I'm like, Oh, I feel like big balls up there playing the bass and just, you know, I'm singing it's and fun. doing it. I mean, that one's just like, Whoa, Oh boy. That's the, that's the biggest thing. We are still doing that. I think what people, we still, I think majority of people don't, they just keep thinking, we just got to get back to normal. We just got to get back yeah, to normal. Right. That ain't that ain't ever happening. Normal. There is not that normal thing. Wasn't normal anyway. It wasn't good. It wasn't going to last. Dated anyway. It, you know. I mean, there's there's a reason why we have uh, horrible mental health. That normal wasn't too good for anybody. Now you're seeing something. Let's take our band for example. We have more opportunity than maybe we've ever had. Wait, we don't we don't need a label. We don't need anybody telling us what to do. We can do anything. Our next record could be in a, an opera, and it might be. You know <laughs> okay. what I mean? Like with, with video and actors, and I mean it can be any, like. And like we played that show with Taking Back Sunday, and it was really neat to play a giant show and uh, jump around on stage and have lights and sound and in ears and all that stuff. But I think a lot of folks are going to go, yeah, but look what else we can do. Yeah, look what else Wait, we can also so, do because you know there's I mean? nothing more fun than what we just did, right? For all those people in Orlando, and you know, we we that was like somewhere we belonged. It made sense that we were there. It was felt right. great. There was money. It was good. The people were there. They knew our music. I mean, that is amazing, and we can yeah. still do that. But we can do a lot else too. There's lots to do, tons to do, right? And there's more, and it's just going to get more and more and more. So that's what I'm excited about. And I will segue that into our guest today, who's also doing stuff that just needs to be done and can be done at higher levels. Podcasting is like one of those notorious things where to make a higher production podcast, everybody's known about it for a long time that it could be done, but almost nobody's pulling it off still. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like the high production podcast. Anyway, our guest today is doing that and he's doing it on, oh, I don't know, the most coolest topic possible that would relate (laughs) to us. It's on Mars Hill, of course. So the very difficult topic to tackle, um, Michael Cosper from Christianity Today is is doing a series um, called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And it's a high produced podcast. I just listened to episode one. Um, I did a long interview for the podcast, so I'm assuming I may be in it at some point. Um, but it seems like it's going to be really great. It's a good time to tell that story. So we have, uh, it's coming out very, very soon. So Mike is, uh, in the waiting room. So let me let him in right now. All right, that's some fresh 2021 music right there. That's You're listening to Contagion. It's the closing track on the Devil Wears Prada's new EP, Z2. It's a follow-up from 11 years ago's 2010's Zombie EP. It's awesome, too. There is a very limited vinyl still available for this EP, both at the band's website and at solidstate.merchnow.com. The reviews have been basically all fantastic for this EP. So go check it out, especially if you love the original zombie EP by Devil Wears Prada. Z2 is available everywhere now. So anywhere you stream or buy music, go check out the whole thing. You'll love it. Right. Oh, 
Michael, um, I just was introducing you as we were joining, you were joining in from the waiting room there, so we can get right into it. But um, I just have gotten finished recently listening to episode one, and I'm blown away, man. It's awesome. I'm so excited about this podcast when people do um, produce podcasts where it's documentary style. I mean, it's so rare, even though everybody knows about that, like that can be done. It's very rare that happens. And to have this topic, get this kind of treatment, I haven't heard the whole thing yet, but I'm already just so stoked on it. So congratulations, because I know what kind of a epic undertaking it is to do a higher production podcast. Not this one, but you know what I'm saying? To even get in that territory with the music and the sound. And I can't imagine the approvals and the media you had to sort through and all that stuff. It sounds like a big project. So... I yeah. bet you feel good that it's done. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's it's been a um, it, yeah, it's been a wild process for sure. But um, I'll, you know, we also have a great team. I mean, the sound designer, mixer, uh, Kate Siefker, she's she's pretty amazing what she does. So uh, yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks. I'm just excited to see you now. I don't know if you've ever. This is. Uh... I don't know if, if this is a compliment to you or you'll you'll be offended. I don't know. But when I was listening to that first episode, right now your voice is a little bit different. But your voice to me sounded just like Ben Affleck. <laughs> I was like, wait, I, 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 I think this is Michael. But but it just there's parts of your tone and your delivery. I was like, oh, so I was like, I wonder if he looks like Ben Affleck. But you know, so I wish I did. Yeah. Uh, I don't have that. Before <laughs> Would me. you trade the voice sounding like him to look like him? <laughs> That's but it, funny. Yeah, but it's great. It's great. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and I like how you're laying out the story. And uh, that was the first thing I was going to how, how many episodes are there going to be? There's going to be 12. Um, so, yeah, so we, we, we start, you know, this first episode starts at the end, uh, but then we back all the way up. Not, not really. I mean, initially we were looking at, like, okay, we're going to start right at 1996 when the church plants. But there's actually so much context because the church is – in many ways, kind of a reaction to what came before it and a continuation of it as well. So, um, you know, right now that second episode, we're actually going all the way back to 1955 to kind of the, the first, you know, fledgling examples of, of mega churches in the U S um, what, what would be like the modern mega church in the U S uh, and looking at all the ways, you know, what happens lays the, the groundwork for Mars Hill and, um, you know, what came after so that that um, it, it uh, I got from it that the Mark was a at the, the sorry I'm stumbling through that you were saying that the pastors at the time that were seen as the coolest and most hip were those Hawaiian shirt wearing big relaxo pastors that you know ha- had kind of big churches with some nice lights and they were seeker type of churches is that the context that you that that you feel that Mars Hill and Mark entered from that scene. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you see, particularly starting in the 1970s, you see this explosion of megachurches. Um, and they're, you know, there's kind of, there's a confluence of things. There's, there's a big, there's a big role to play from, from guys like Robert Schuller, um, who create this sort of friendlier, happier Christianity. Um, and Schuller goes kind of way out in, in some ways, but then guys like, you know, Bill Hybels and Rick Warren come after him and, and a lot of other megachurches. I mean, by the time Mars Hill's planted, there's there's more than 320 megachurches in the U.S., um, where in the, you know, previous generations, there might have been 12. Yeah. So there's this thing happening where these churches are exploding, and a big part of it is this kind of happy, laid-back, um, 
you know, pastor with a lot of business acumen, you know, who's seen as a CEO. And then Mark emerges and he's sort of their, their polar contrast, um, particularly in those early years where he talks about, I mean, there's, there's quotes where he, he literally says, you know, I think if the church grows, there's a problem with it. We should be scaring more people off with, yeah. you know, sin and, and hell and damnation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the one of the things I always thought, uh, you know, that I would tie to for myself across the journey of it was, it was very, very slow, but very right in front of your face. Um, you know, Mark continually slid, what his values were in that way. The ones that some early of his early values that were the most obnoxious that I latched onto the most, they continually were in retreat all the way through until they reached levels of, he became the thing that he was the polar opposite of. And, you know, there was some awareness that that was always clear, but you just figured, well, as the church grows, you got to expect a little of that. Mm -hmm. But it was just a really over, over time. It was, it's really still hard for me now to think, but there's, he, he must have really meant the stuff he said back then too, because it didn't seem even advantageous at the time in some way that I, th- I find that confusing. Cause he certainly seemed to believe those same things mm-hmm. at, when he was saying them back all the way back then. Yeah. I think a big part of the, the Mars Hill story, a big part of this project is to try and uh, just to try and communicate the reality that, you know, people are not one thing. Like Mark's not one mm-hmm. thing. Mark's not pure villain, you know, cause there's some, you know, incredible stories of, of pastoral presence and generosity and, and hospitality. Um, but, you know, there are, I would say that, you know, there are Mark defenders out there who are, are going to say, well, he, he was just sort of a victim of uh, his circumstances or of fame or of, of people who were out to get him or whatever. And, you know, that's, that's wildly inaccurate as well. Um, so I, I think even with stuff like this, when it came to kind of the vision of the church, you know, he's preaching that kind of stuff. He's going to conferences and saying your churches shouldn't, your churches should should be shrinking, and you know, let's get rid of all this seeker, you know, sensitive stuff and all that. Um, but then there are leaders who knew him uh, back in you know '96 and, and elsewhere, and they're saying, yeah, we knew we knew from the beginning this guy wanted to plant a really really big church. So that's interesting. I'm excited to hear all that all the way back like that because. I just didn't have the right point of view of it at the time, but um, it's going to be exciting to hear. That's what I was going to say. One of the things I've already taken away from listening to the first episode is there's a a real, I know we're talking about church and maybe church culture and even God and morality and uh, the church system, but there is a real psychological element here. So uh, I'm sure Matt told you, or maybe you know, but I was a worship leader at Marcel West Seattle and, uh, so we, but when we moved out, our band Emory moved out to Seattle. I didn't know anything about Mars Hill or whatever, but we would go. Um, what was the name of that club that they had? The, the Paradox. Paradox, yeah. And we'd play. We played music there a couple times, or we'd go see bands there. And I was like, man, no church in South Carolina would ever let a secular band play here. And I thought it was really cool. You know, and then when I started hearing uh, Mark Driscoll's sermons, there was something really intriguing about a tougher guy going, "Hey, I care about you, but you're a dumbass." Like it felt like you know a, a big brother, a dad that you kind of wanted to be involved. Like at least he was involved, and especially in that you know in the Seattle area, it felt like uh, it was just it was like the perfect setting. Even though it didn't seem like it, you you would have thought that 
you know, it wouldn't have drawn as much in that area just because, uh, you know, the liberalness of it, uh, LGBTQ, uh, all, all the elements that usually go push back against church, especially a dominate, uh, dominating one. But, uh, and it was, I mean, I, I remember when I got the job, uh, I remember somebody coming and oh, you work for a cult. And I was like, it's not a cult. What are you talking about? Get out of here, you know? But I, then I was always in the Seattle area a little bit like I didn't want to tell people what I did because I knew they go, oh, yeah, that church. I've seen him in the you know, the stranger times uh, or something and talking bad about him. But it was just so powerful. But the psychology of it really was the thing. And, like, it hit me in because you're right, church and and what doesn't appeal to a lot of men. A lot of men sit there, and the only thing they are involved in is maybe they get to work on the parking team or, you know, they an usher or a deacon or whatever it might be. And so to call men out and go, hey, no, in your private life, you need to be doing this, dude. Do it. It just it did kind of ignite a fire in men, I think. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. One of the one of the connections we'll make later in the later in the podcast. There's a whole episode about Mark's emphasis on trying to reach and transform young men. Um, that was really part of his missional strategy. Is is if we can mobilize young men for the church, and they can mature and get married and have kids and get real jobs and all of this. You know, it wasn't just like oh, we can transform the church. It was like oh, we can you know we can transform a city. I mean, there was sort of a missional kingdom vision in some of that. Um, and there's all kinds of, you know, we could go down that road too, in terms of all kinds of stuff that went along with that, that was, that was fairly toxic. But, uh, there's an interesting parallel, I think, in the way he preached about how, you know, men had this tendency to live in adolescence forever and they never transitioned into manhood. And there, I mean, there's a lot of parallels to that in, in, some some depth psychology stuff that's out there and like Richard Rohr, you know, the Catholic, very liberal, um, you know, priest theologian mm-hmm. um, Rohr writes about this all the time that Western culture has lost rights of initiation for, you know, for young men that prepare them for the rest of life. And um, so I think I think Mark like <laughs> there were. There, there's famous incidents like the the stones, you know, at the at the gathering where he handed out stones to young guys. Yeah. Um, but then there's just the general experience of like somebody invites you to church and you show up and this, you know, this very authoritative guy is literally screaming in your face, telling you to get your act together and to grow up, that it's time to be a real man. Um, and there's something sort of initiative about that. Yeah. Oh yeah. One time, um, God, it's embarrassing really, man. But the one time we were there, it was in some series. He just, he really had given it pretty hard to men, this or that, whatever. And like we stood up, like we, we had to stand up and like tell our wives something in like right there and like stand up, look at her right now, tell her something or whatever, or it was something open enough where you would interpret it yourself. And it was like it was. It wasn't just some confession. It was something very specific, and it was just very strong. And of course, you were going to do it. And right. of course, you're looking at your wife. And of course, you're really analyzing yourself. And it's like you know, you you know, you get up and you look at your wife in there, and you know, you start crying. I'm I'm sorry, and I'm going to do this, and that, these are the ways that I. And you know, that's that you just attach all that emotion and feeling that somebody. The whole thing, like this whole thing is so intense. You're so bonded to the environment and the circumstances. And it does, and whatever, for whatever reason, that environment, cultivated environment and psychology applied to you does get your behavior to change. And you do experience effects of the behavior, even positive effects. But, and then you attribute that to 
that the environment or him and that's an accident, but maybe even, but it, it's not, not accident on his part, but from the user's point of view, it becomes an accident that you attribute that room and that space and all the feelings with that. And you dedicate your kids there, you know, like all, and you said there was something in the podcast about that, but a lot of life's highlights occur there. That's what, and, and then passively all that be becomes a tribute it's just you know it's incredibly powerful in that way and, and then i was even gonna say like you used the audio in the first one of him like kind of going off on uh, men and being in a diaper and your girlfriend pushing around i made a messy <laughs> all that stuff and, and the other part of the psychology there is uh, I, i'm gonna laugh because i'm not that guy i'm not gonna be that you know what i mean like everybody's laughing in the audience or stuff like that because oh not me you know he's talking to those weak men now i'm strong or i'm getting you know and you want to be strong you don't want to be a little baby you don't want mommy to come take care of you and and you buy into it especially as men i mean it, it felt almost like uh some of the tough coaches that you've had you know in the back like get your ass out there you know you know you get back on that football field right now you know uh, and it does mean something, and that that language oftentimes does speak to men, even if we don't talk that way or realize it. You know, like you said, that initiation. I read, you know, a good bit of and seen videos of like Robert Bly, uh, mm-hmm. Iron John, and just that that idea of that initiation and what it means to be, you know, taken, you know, men taken from their mom, moms and go, and now they go with the men, and it's scary and it's hard, and you got, you know, mm-hmm. he must have really bought into that on some level. You, you're right; I didn't even think about it that way. He knew it early if, on. If he could get Right. The men, because nobody was going after the men. Mm-hmm. Well, men will just come. The women will bring them. You know, let the women bring. But he's like, if I, if the men bring the family, well, the families will grow. Our church will grow, and we'll have more influence. And I mean, do you think? Uh, and I don't even know if this is a good question, so you don't even have to answer. But do you think? Do you really think there was a change as the as the church got bigger and bigger, and more famous or infamous? Do you think something changed, or was his plan the same even from the beginning? Does that make sense? Like, was it? Was it? Was it? Because it doesn't seem like you said, like he did do some good stuff. Maybe he even did a lot of good stuff. Probably did more good stuff maybe than even bad, potentially. I don't know with the whole thing falling apart. But was it was his plan like do this, this, and this, and this was get to this stage. Then we moved to this phase and then to go here. I mean, do, do, do you sense any of that? Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I don't I don't necessarily like uh, – I'm trying real hard as, as we've worked on this. I'm trying not to try and like read his mind. Right. Um, I do know, you know, there were, there were lots of people early on who were, you know, as early as like 1999, 2000, speaking into his life and saying, hey, you need older, more mature men around you that you're willing to be accountable to and to submit to, and author, you know, authorities to submit to. And he, you know, he resisted that pretty strongly and at times pretty directly um, uh, to the point where there were people who you know, that w- he would part ways with in ministry that partners in X 29 and other places. And, and they'd, you know, they'd say, Hey, listen, I, I realized you're never going to sort of be accountable to me. That's fine. But, you know, find someone that you can. And they'd name names, you know, submit to this pastor, submit to this person. And his reaction was kind of like, how, how am I supposed to submit to them? My church is bigger than theirs. You know, right. that, that's a famous, mm-hmm. that's a famous Mark quote. He said it a lot. Um, so I think, I think there were, I think there were certain things that kind of lived under the surface for a, for a long time, but there were also these moments, I mean, where, you know, some of these older guys that, that when they had authority, particular, particularly before 2007, um, these guys could kind of speak up and say, Hey, we're not doing this. You know, you're, we're not going there. We're going to, we're going to restrain this. And, um, you know, but the gravity of, you know, the gravity of power and, and the gravity of power, particularly in non-denominational churches is to 
you know, to move more and more and more towards a, a kind of central authority. And that was certainly the Marsville story. And uh, what I think a big part of what makes it uh, an important case study. Yeah, the it's um it, it seems that it makes sense to think that the fa- fundamental corruptibility of a person could be in place, and then the amount of power and circumstances will drive that the that to emerge. You know, I mean, there's people I know that have had less power and come into more power, and I've seen how it affects them. You know, and it's the c- characteristics that they already have, and then it can get. It can just, you know, so it's not like they were a different person. I don't know. That's a hard question in in any case. But Mark has been, uh, it seems like when you really look at it, it's just hard to deny that he's a really exceptional and gifted person to have weaved all these things together um, as a set of skills and how he has been able to navigate it. Um, and you hear a lot of reports of that. Um, I was I was hanging out with some ex-Marcel folks before that were there from the really early days and you know a lot of them just say he's you know he may be the smartest person they've ever you know tangled with you know kind of a thing mm-hmm. and that that it, like it's so aware it seems like he had a demographic insight early on that he and and he just got so much mileage out of so many things so influentially and it's so it didn't seem calculated but yet he was operating on obviously so many levels intentionally that were beyond beyond anybody else in the field, mm-hmm. you know? So. And I think too, there was, there was this dynamic where as the church got bigger and bigger, he found himself surrounded by different kinds of people. I mean, you know, I don't know if you guys saw James McDonald's Twitter feed the other day, but it was really something to go back and read it. Um, you know, James, what did he say? No, I didn't see it, but yeah, he, there, there's about 30 tweets about, um, Julie Royce, the reporter who's been been writing about him. Oh yeah, and I mean, you just got to read them. I mean, they're they're beyond parody. Like I, I can't do them wow. justice in terms of how over the top they truly are. But you know, James became a really significant influence in his life. Yeah, and and obviously, as as his ministry has kind of you know his his flaws have been exposed and his ministry's kind of collapsed. You see a lot of parallels, and I think you know I think there's some truth that. As, as he got to these platforms where he was surrounded by guys who had these big churches and had a lot of centralized power, because that's really common in, in mega churches, um, he kind of had this, it was almost like he had a permission structure around him mm-hmm. to, to just run through people uh, because it, he, saw, he saw himself and the leaders around him, uh, including probably the board, saw his, his particular role as the preacher as the essential thing that defined Mars Hill and, you know, uh, sustained its future possibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It's interesting that too, that what we're talking about here as well is you're right. He's so Mark Driscoll, so high functioning and his personality is going to be because he is so smart and intense and driven and focused and goal oriented. Yeah, his personality yeah, is going to be overwhelming to an extent. And then it, it, it seemed like probably pretty early on he flipped some switch to realize people as tools and resources in a way. It felt that way. Like when we, when we first moved out there, we went to Mars Hill a few times and then uh, we went to the city church or, uh, in Seattle a couple of times. Uh, what's his, who's the pastor there now? Um, you know, he's Judah, Judah Smith. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and there was a, there was a marked difference. It was Judah's dad at the time, but there was a marked difference. And I remember going, well, you know, that, Maybe that uh, Mars Hill is just, uh, you know, truer because it's harder. 
You know what I mean? Like there's something about that. You know, maybe that's that's what it should be. But anyway, so I, I ended up getting married and leaving, and then I got the job at Mars Hill, and I was like, oh, this will be exciting. I, you know, I've always liked Mark Driscoll. When I got there, it felt like I didn't know. I remember pulling in, and I had this real bad feeling in my soul. And I didn't, hadn't even talked to anybody yet, but I just had a bad feeling like I do the right thing. I brought my family out here for God and to do God's work, I thought. And I just I got a weird feeling. I was like, ah, you're just, you're just nerves. You just moved, and, you know, you're going to be fine. And then as the months went on, I started meeting people. The thing that I noticed was there was just copies of Mark Driscoll. I was like, wait a minute. All these people, there's so many people, but they're, they just seem kind of like that the – the personality was the same. I talked to some of the elders or, or uh, you know, some of the staff at the churches, and I was like, that, that's exactly what Mark would say. I just, and I was like, yeah, but, you know, we're all in this together, and so we're on mid, you know, I, I could always tell myself, it's not that big of a deal, you know, and, and I, I caught myself saying some of them, you know what I mean, <laughs> about men and what we should do and how I should lead the people that I was over with and the worship teams and all this stuff, and, uh, but as it just so I was only there for a year. I, I, I just knew by the end of that year, I was like, I got to get out of here. I don't know why. This is before Marcel ever imploded. I don't know why, but it was. I just saw more and more copies of Mark Driscoll, and then there would be copies of those people. So it was like, you know, copies of copies of copies. You know, there's like Bizarro Superman. But imagine <laughs> if there's a Bizarro Bizarro Superman and a Bizarro 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 Superman. You know, it's just like copies of copies. And it became just in that one year I was there, it was this weird switch from. This guy, he's the cussing pastor, and he's you know he's a badass, and he's doing all this stuff too. Wait a minute, he talks about his family like they're the Kennedys, and they're they're almost regal, and they're uh, influential. And he's got this book, and I was at West Seattle when they did the uh, the Dateline came, and we they made us clean the church like you couldn't believe, and and you know they pull up in suburbans, and I'm like, man, this is, I mean, it really felt like celebrity at that point, mm-hmm. and it was that's when I was like, oh, this is brand. Driscoll. I remember him talking, you know, uh, I think it's gone now. Uh, maybe you found that where he said, uh, if he, if he ever should be removed, get him out of there. Cause he, the mission of the church is more important than Mark Driscoll. And I don't, I think they took that away or something like that. I don't think it's, you can find that audio anymore, but, uh, it just became that and him and his wife, they came in and they did the Dateline thing. And I was like, wow. And I caught myself saying, this is for God. It's going to be good. This book is going to be air. And then, and I was, I just started thinking after I left, I was like, wait a minute, after I left, cause we sat down, uh, I've told this story before, but I'll tell you this story real quick. I'm, I'm not trying to take all your time, but no, so uh, he was he was going to all the different churches and having like lunch with them to really ramp everything up. And there was you know it was going to be uh, this is the the book tour and all that stuff right before that. And, yeah, and so uh, he came in and they got us Chipotle. I was like, oh, a free Chipotle! This is awesome. <laughs> and we I sat down and uh, he he just starts talking and I get my Chipotle and I open it up and I'm looking at him. And I'm like, when do I take a bite? Because he's not taking a bite and. And for forty <laughs> for forty five minutes, he held his burrito and just talked to us. And man, he did he he did cuss. He was talking about this building when they acquired it and who was here, and they didn't care. And he kicked this person out, and he did this. And I was just like, I mean, I was you couldn't have I, if if Barack Obama would have been outside signing autographs, you couldn't have got me out of that room. It was like that. I was everybody was on the edge of their seat. You know, mm-hmm. I'd take a bite, and I didn't want him to see me eating because I was like, he's not eating. What else does you know? And he's just, I mean. You couldn't believe the language he used and everything. And it, it really felt like almost like a military person uh, getting ready for battle. And it felt that way. And in the moment, I was just, I promise you, I was so on board. I was like, man, I'll, I'm going to do this. This is going to be great. The music that I am going to be leading is important. And this is important. And, all that. and he, he laid out all this stuff. I mean, he obviously thought a lot about it. 
And then he leaves, never saw him take one bite of the burrito. Never did. Uh, I was like, gosh. And I just, I even respect that. I was like, man, he doesn't even care about food. You know what I mean? That's a free burrito. But uh, it's so funny. My house was right behind the church at the time. And so I left and I was like, I was, you know, I was feeling like intense, you know, emotional. I was pumped up and all that stuff. But by the time I got to my house, I was like, wait a minute. What some of the stuff he was saying, that doesn't really sound Christ-like. It, 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 wait, he, he, there was a guy that, that rented a room from the church because it was kind of like a community building before they acquired it. And you just kicked him out because he said he didn't want you to come in there and mess with his art and stuff. I was like, wait, hold on. That doesn't seem like loving to the community. You, what are you doing? And, and it was so funny. It, just being able to get out of that room and from under his personality, I was like, let me think about this a little more critically. And from there, I was like, ah, this, this isn't right. This isn't right. And then finally, I just kind of had to say, yeah, I'm going to focus more on my band. I just don't want to, I just don't want to do this anymore. And it was hard. A lot of people, I mean, I had some serious conversations with some of the staff where they're like, this is a mistake. You shouldn't do this. You got to change. And, and, um, but I knew, I didn't even know what was happening. I just knew something was wrong, you know? And it, it, I mean, I don't necessarily want to use the word cult because so many people use that, but it, there was a cult of personality in a sense of this personality so strong, so driven that you, if you fall in the line behind it, something is going to happen. He is going to get something done, you know, and it was just overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, there's this, <clears throat> there's this whole idea and like um, this, this kind of sociological idea of like charismatic authority. And, and the idea is that, you know, it's some of it is sort of the personality thing and just the presence. And, you know, I'll never forget. I mean, the first time I met Mark was at a, at a conference in 2006 or 2007. And there was this big thing in New York city with Redeemer and Sovereign Grace. And, um, I knew some Mars Hill guys. I got invited to, to, to play music for it with them. And, um, so anyway, like we, we go out to eat one night, we're all at this kind of restaurant bar sitting around and Driscoll rolls up to the group. And it was, you know, it's, it, there's, there's a presence to the guy. It's just hard to describe, you know, he walks in the room and it's, he doesn't ask to take over and he doesn't even really have to like exert much force to take over. It's just because everything that comes out of his mouth is interesting and funny and entertaining, which it was, I mean, he held court for hours. Um, you know, there's people just sort of line up for it, whether you agree with what he's saying or not, it's hard <laughs> not to laugh and not along. Um, and, and so there's, there, that's an element of it. But then the other element of it is part of the whole charismatic authority thing is the results. Like yeah. you just see success after success after success and, you know, the, the incredible number of baptisms and this expanding, you know, campus after campus and all of this. And when, when you find yourself resisting or, or arguing against it, you feel this weight because you're not just arguing against this guy you're arguing against this sense that there's this movement that's so much bigger. Exactly. And, and that's what makes it painful and complex, you know. Yeah, because everybody's used to like bullshitters. They talk and they don't deliver any results. Everybody goes, hey, he's funny. He's cool, whatever. That doesn't last, obviously. But if somebody can hold attention and deliver results, good luck stopping them. Mm -hmm. Good luck, you know. <laughs> yeah. And he certainly could on, on both fronts. Um, Michael, your background is that you were a church. Um, so you're with Christianity Today, which is really cool that they're doing this project and everything. But your story is part of this, too, that you were a uh, church leader, a worship a music guy, and seeking to, uh, if you wouldn't mind, I'm curious more about that backstory that you alluded to in the episode. 
Yeah. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, our church had, you know, kind of a parallel, uh, origin story as, as Mars Hills. Um, you know, there were a bunch of us, we were late, you know, I was like 19. Uh, there were a lot of, you know, late teens, early twenties folks feeling displaced from the church, didn't speak our language, kind of just wasn't who we are. And, um, there were kind of three groups that came together to plant the church. There was a, a there were some seminary students and um, a, a guy who had been commissioned to be a church planter by the Southern Baptists. Um, there was a group of us that were gathering in a in a Bible study, and then there was this group with Youth for Christ that had been reaching out to punk, hardcore, and and goth kids in the city, uh, which at the time was like a real scene in Louisville. It's pretty much dead now. And uh, they, none of us had church homes. And there was no place to, to take these new converts. We, we felt displaced. And so, you know, one thing led to another. We, we kind of committed together to plant this church. Um, I came on about a year later and I was on the staff until 2015. And, um, you know, like Mars Hill, like we had a music venue, we had art galleries, we had studio spaces, we recorded a bunch of records. Um, we were in Acts 29 for about seven years, and then we spun out and, and launched our own church planning network, and we did the multi-site thing. And, you know, frankly, from from probably somewhere around 2010, 2011 on, it, it got really, really hard. It got really painful. There was a lot of conflict. And uh, I left in 2015. Uh, our lead pastor was asked to take a leave of absence in 2017 and uh resigned or 2016 and then resigned shortly shortly after that and um in our case you know we were we were fortunate that the church survived the transitions and uh continues to this day but it was it was kind of this interesting time because you had you had mark in 2014 and then you know uh a couple years year and a half later or so you had you know darren patrick uh having to step down uh, and then you had, you know, our pastor uh, stepping down and, you know, in, in the years since then, there's just been this kind of, kind of burden for me. I, I didn't know Mark well at all, but I knew Darren really well. And, and, you know, our lead pastor was a good friend too. And um, so, so for me, a lot of this has, has been just, just kind of trying to sort out, like, how do I understand this? What, what do I think is going on here? And the Mars Hill story, I, I you know, is a, is a good one, I think to, you know, to explore for me because I have some objectivity about it. I mean, I know some, some of those folks, but, um, yeah, I, I, it, it plagues churches. I mean, it's, it's yeah. happening all over the place. Uh, it's that's inter- I think that's what gives you the ability to tell the story really well, because it's like some just outside person would have a really hard time telling it. And it's always been a struggle to tell the story. We just ramble on the podcast randomly about it. it's one approach that we've been doing since <laughs> right when we left. But, um, a lot of people early on didn't want to talk about it. And a lot, you know, everybody's had this different time. There's been these other timelines where people will get back together. And then every time I go back and talk to people again or relook at it, I have this totally different point of view that you keep getting the farther and farther away from it. Mm-hmm. So you've been steeped in that same kind of a parallel culture puts you in a good position, but your church had, it was the same thing with Darren Patrick and him. It's the, it's this bullying leader. Like what's the common factor in all this? It's well, the Darren Patrick bullying bully. leadership. Was, was his Darren Patrick? Yeah. His was that too. His was bullying. Uh, yeah, it was a, it was a variety. I mean, if you look at with the letter that was written about Darren, um, and again, like, you know, Darren was a really good friend. So, um, I full disclosure on that, but I mean, you look at the letter that was written about Darren and there was a, you know, there was a, a there was a broad cultural thing going on there of um, of unhealth and 
um, and of conflict. And it had gone on, it had gone on for years. And there had been, you know, there had been a lot of, there had been kind of a rotating door with the staff, you know, similar to the, how there had been at Mars Hill in those last few years. And, you know, Darren was such a fascinating case because in the aftermath of it, um, once he did step down, he, he made a lot of efforts to reconcile with folks. I mean, he spent a lot of time and a lot of energy pursuing that. Um, and you know, the, the tragedy for those who don't know, the tragedy is that, you know, a couple of years later he took his life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, same stuff for us. I mean, it was just a, it was an, a very un, unhealthy culture of, of, of leadership and, um, a toxic culture, rotating door, um, you know, heavy turnover on our executive team and, um, yeah, they're, they're just reached a point where you, you live in this space. I mean, something I've talked about a lot with, with folks on the Mars Hill, uh, story is that you live in this space for a really long time that, that feels like, man, if we had like one good conversation, we could probably turn the corner here. We could probably straighten things out. Um, but, and it's like, you feel like you've had that conversation and then, you know, two weeks later it's, it's deja vu all over again. Mm-hmm. The one common factor there maybe to look at if you, I mean, I guess I just have always felt that the thing I experienced there was unique in the sense, but also, oh, this is just how things can work in a way that I understood and understand to be universal in power and organizations and structures or persons or systems. And when you say about your parallel experience and the other ones, and then the ones that have emerged, that kind of uh, reaffirms that um, because a lot of times pastor scandals are always like, Oh, some crazy hooker thing or whatever. Like that's easy to say, well, that's not, doesn't apply here, but this one plagues organizations and stuff large and small. And I'm wondering if one of the, Hallmarks. You said revolving door there. Another hallmark of it has to be, and some cultures are sick, but not as sick or toxic, but not as toxic, but they can always increase in toxicity. And truly, most organizations could eventually become a cult, I believe, if it's just a capability of any organization. But the volunteer burnout, the volunteer harm of the people they're investing seems to really be a hallmark of these organizations that have bad cultures. And it's like, you, you, there's always a fresh supply of them to replace the burnt out people that there's some ladder that you can gain by doing this thing or being on the board of this thing or being the, there's something that it offers. And then there's a churn factor. So it seems like the whole thing takes advantage of the resources of the thing, but it shows up in volunteer burnout. Do you think that's common in all these? Yeah, I think so. And I, I would say, I think the, the underlying issue there that that I think you the underlying issue that I think ends up affecting everything across the board and showing up in, in a whole lot of places is this idea that, you know, what what are we willing to tolerate for the sake of the good that we're seeing? You know? So are we willing to tolerate the fact that there's this churn? Are we willing to fo- tolerate um are we willing to tolerate the the turnover on our staff? Are we willing to tolerate, you know, you know, whether it's anger or whatever, because like you know, the, the Ravi Zacharias story, that's, that's the exact same issue. You, you had a culture that said, you know, here's some red flags, right? Like you've got red flags around the, the, the guy's travel and all of that. You've got red flags around the fact that he owns all these day spas. Um, and you know, it's a, the question then becomes, okay, are, what, what are, what are we willing to sort of turn a blind eye to or not ask too many questions about 
um, because we we so believe in the you know the positive aspects of of what's coming out of this. Uh, same thing with Bill Hybels and Willow Creek. Uh, there was this sense of, uh, and and I think it it gets compounded in interesting ways because part of part of what's what's really really I think accentuated in, in celebrity culture is this idea that this this leader this visionary leader is this god appointed authority in a way that um mm-hmm. you know that that makes them very very difficult to to restrain or hold accountable i think too that uh so i've been a worship leader at two mega churches i was there and then i was at seacoast where darren patrick actually ended up he came on the podcast it ended up being he is a nice guy. that's what i'm saying that's what stinks about this and i would say Earlier on in this podcast, there was a lot of us uh, episodes where we would just, you know, talk poorly about pastors and their churches. And then I started feeling a little bit, I don't know if guilty or just, I just wanted to move away from that because there is good being done and people can do what they want to do. If you want to go, you know, we've talked about Stephen Furtick. If you want to go to Stephen Furtick's church and you don't want to do research or find out some of the stuff that, that you might not like about him or if Mark Driscoll's church, Trinity in Arizona, if you don't want to do that, and you can do what you want to do. And I, even with all the bad, I know there is some good, so we can get that out there. But there is something about the mega church size that seems wrong to me now. And and I'll even say, like at Seacoast, there's never been a scandal. The leadership there, Greg Surratt, he, you know, he, he's about as trustworthy of a person as you can get. Now, he also still endorses Mark Driscoll. I think that's really mis- a huge mistake. Ma- Matt Carter wrote him. Uh, Mark Driscoll was writing his book, and we were like, we don't think, we, you know, we worked at Mars Hill. We think this, and Matt wrote him a long list of a bunch of stuff, and Greg decided to still endorse him. A lot of pastors still endorse each other. It's like the good old boy club. They're a little bit. I don't like that. There's a celebrity. There's you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You want to be seen. You get influence. But the bigger your church gets, it does seem like that turnover, The you can be more hidden. Oh, you, you know, you have a team or, you know, a, a board that's around you, but who are they and what do they say? You know, what, what is that about? The bigger it gets, it just seems like the, the easier it is and the more likely something bad happens. When I was in, uh, I lived in Franklin, Tennessee for a while, and then, uh, you know, one of the biggest churches there, Pete Wilson's church. And then he, he goes, you know what? I never, I don't want to lead in exhaustion. I don't want to run on empty, so I'm stepping down. Then you find out he was having an affair. Hmm. Then I was at a wedding with his his girlfriend, maybe his wife. Now and I was like, oh, that's you know, it wasn't that long. I was like, oh, but you were you're the you were the pastor. What? Why? Did, how does that happen when you're leading people like Mark Driscoll? They, I believe, they all did start because of a desire to help people and to know Christ and to have changed lives. And then it does become a bit of like a brand or a celebrity. And then you become untouchable and you're right. Like I think Mark Driscoll, you said this earlier, like once you get so big, why do I listen to somebody else? Because I'm doing God's work. Like you said, you know, I'm doing God's work. It, the proof is in the pudding. People are coming here because of God, not me because of God, but it is that brand. And, and it's just by the means yeah. in, in all those cases. I mean, the, the, what's, what's the guy in New York that just got, you know, it, it, everybody's like, yeah, he probably cheats on his wife. You know, I'll, everybody <laughs> makes fun of him. And then he does. Tulian Chivijan. I don't, can't ever say his last name. Yeah, well, you, know, you had a list of people. You said Perry Noble, Mark Driscoll, Bill Hybels, uh, Tulian Chivijan, Ravi Zacharias, uh, James McDonald, Carl Lentz, Darren Patrick. Carl Lentz. You know, like that's the, that's the company, you know. And there's more. I mean, of course, there's more than that. Those are the biggest ones, of course, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean those are the those are famous names, and there's a lot of yeah. there's a lot of unfamous names. Out yeah, there, right, exactly. Um, that are dealing with the same, same dynamics. But I mean, Lentz is just Lentz is such an interesting example of it to me, because here's you know like 
there's, if people want to Google it, they can Google it. Uh, cause someone sent it to me. Uh, look, look, look up Joe Rogan's comments on Carl Lentz because they're hilarious. Oh, really? Um, because he's calling out. And I think this was before anything went down. He's calling out exactly the problem. Here's this guy walking around, you know, shirt off, tan as can be ripped six pack abs, but like basically naked. I mean, his shorts are like these, there's all these photos of him with his shorts basically falling off. Yeah. And and I, I, you know, I'll, I'll restrain from, from using Rogan's phrase for it, but it's pretty, it's pretty spot on. And you go like, what, how did it, how did this become the way we think about like, how did, how did it become acceptable that this is what a pastor is supposed to be doing right is walter white disease you know everybody wants walter white to be their pastor it's just you're the it's the anti-hero but you're them too and you Mm -hmm. you know you think i could if i could just take the power i would also have those same problems and i would take care of my problems too it's that reason you resonate with walter white whatever it is yeah and i mean it's just as well you know this this thing where we um you know, we, we, we equate fame, uh, in some ways, I think in the church, we, we equate fame in certain ways with, uh, with, with godly authority, you know, with the, the presence of God, the gift of the gifts of God. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the, there, there are just weird, there are weird things. There are weird priorities. I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day and this sounds harsh, but you know, when's, when's the last time there was a great big, you know, you know, global, uh, hit it for the church written by like a, an average looking worship leader, right? right? Like, like our, you know, and, and I'm not saying all the music that's coming out there is bad or anything like that. Those are judgments people can make for themselves. I'll say that for you. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> but, but again, like there's, there is this phenomenon that, you know, I was talking with, uh, with a friend the other day, that's a scholar of this stuff. And he was like, yeah, people, people discover worship music now through YouTube. And so the way you got to sort of market yourself, if, if you're trying to sort of, you know, get this stuff out there, like the video has to look good. And, and now we're at a point where like, well, the people have to look good too. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is entertainment. It seems like there's a, there's a percentage of entertainment that is what, cause it's still that seeker drawing people and the church still feels like it's in that idea of, Oh, well we're going to have an actual drum set and electric guitar, but it just is ramped up now to lights. And you're right. Like the band is phenomenal Nashville musicians or so, you know, and they're, and they're all playing great and the same and everything's streamlined and you have this great looking pastor. that's going to give you a couple I mean, even like with, with, uh, Driscoll, I was thinking early on, I think Matt, you and I had this conversation. You could tell like he was actually, Following Joe Rogan's uh, comedy, this is before even yeah, Joe Rogan, Chris totally. Rock, and everybody. Yeah, he, like tell, he, he was getting Jim Gaffigan lines and yeah, stuff. Uh, he he was tell. using that and being entertaining, and and yeah. he could. You're right, like he could just command a room. It, it, that, I mean, mm. it was funny. The first time I met him, uh, uh, we had a big all staff meeting at the main campus in up in Seattle, and uh, my campus pastor introduced me to him. And first of all, I was blown away by how short he was. He's <laughs> really short. I mean, he's, he's probably a good six inches shorter than me, and he just looked me dead in the eye, reached out his hand. I had to go to his hand and shake it. And it was probably, he's like, man, we are so glad you're here. We were doing great things and this is important. And so, you know, you, you, it wasn't just a, you know, you're not here by mistake. This is important. And I was like, yeah, that's really cool. You know, but it was almost like a, a Mel Gibson uh, kind of person, like <laughs> yeah, little, yeah. you know, uh, like Braveheart type. Like he's just going to fight and be there, but he's a little he fella, but he's just going to do it, you know? And I mean, it, all, all of this, by 
it scares me about the church, and this is the bigger thing. The system now feels very much, like you said, it it is now, it's probably going to, especially even after the pandemic, maybe even going more and more digital, but will that make pastors even, you know, less accessible? And the bigger pastor, the bigger churches get, I, I seriously believe Mark Driscoll's plan was probably to take over the whole West Coast and just go east, and then eventually, I mean, he probably wouldn't have been upset if all churches were Marcel Brand. I mean, that might have been the the goal, like the Amazon of churches would yeah, be his yeah. goal or something like that, right? Because that means you did something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we, uh, you know, we'll 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 look at Robert Schuler on, on this stuff for for sure because you know, Schuler's ministry really became like the 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 church ministry really became about the TV show, right? Like this, it was a massive church. It was a it was a massive success. He did some. He did weird stuff. He planted the church at a drive-in theater where people would literally drive in with their cars and he'd stand on top of the like concession stand and, and preach to them in their cars. And um, so, you know, he was, he was this young, passionate sort of innovator, charismatic communicator or whatever. And then in 1969, Billy Graham comes to him and says, Hey, I think you really need to think about having a TV ministry, um, which he does. And you know, it becomes the hour of power and, you know, by the time you get to like the the mid eighties, I mean the the audiences for this thing are just jaw jaw dropping. Um, you know, globally, and so you know, there's something about that. There's something about that to me, sort of the template of that kind of success, that kind of platform, that kind of reach. That I think you can you can look at. You know, you you can see the sort of the tendrils of it in the whole multi site phenomenon, and you know, mega churches in general, and and this idea that, like, if you're going to be a successful pastor with a big church, like, you got to have your books, right? Like, it's not enough to have the to have the pastorate. It's not enough to have the church. It's not enough to have the the main stage at you know Catalyst or whatever. Like, you've also got to crank out you know a book every twelve to eighteen months and yeah. um, mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Which is which is just a you know where do those expectations come from? Like, what do we? Yeah. You know, why do we why do we assume that of, you know, quote unquote success? And then everything bad comes in to justify how to get the books done, who to plagiarize and who to get to do it for you and what way to do publicity and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was with some people the other day that were involved on the, on his team, you know, um, largely and throughout. And uh, I'm not I'm not making this up I'm speculative, of course, but um, I thought this was just profound was um they said that when they were doing the marketing and things were going big and really well at the time that uh, like some politicians and Ben Carson's team and people like that had reached out to them mm-hmm. and started saying um, like wanted to work with them the same way they I were doing a marketing PR, team like, yeah. like Mars uh-huh. Hill. Yeah. And so he says if Mars Hill doesn't in, you know, crap out and they start getting involved with that, then it, but the whole thing would become part of the you know republican machine and and maybe made it different would have changed that outcome like think about if you had mars hill creative team just go all the way through like let's say everybody not that they would have done that ethically but you imagine if you took mars hill's creative team and then got that in with as highly useful that that same kind of thing with the with that whole machine like those those are the same tactics and that's why i think so weird you know because to me, Trump just looks the same. It just feels the same to me. So it's, except for it's happening at the larger level, but it's these, it's the patterns that I recognize at least kind of thing, but it actually 
you know, in these brands, they just merge and take over. Like, that is the story of brands and organizations and, you know, power consolidations. That's how they work, you know. So if you have this talented thing, it will merge with this other big talented thing. And the momentum of the whole thing is a right. movement, you know. And that's maybe Scratch where. Each other's back. Yeah. So what if you what if they would have gone? Mars Hill would have gone from fourteen thousand, and and then by twenty, uh, you know, twenty twenty would have been thirty five thousand, forty thousand all across the country. How strong that and the political force there is, is not. You know, that's something. It would have been with the hyper media, you know, hyper skilled media at, with a church of forty thousand. I mean, that might have been a trajectory that that could have existed. Yeah. I mean, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, I mean, there was a there was a vision document that laid out a laid out a picture of the church reaching a hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's someone who's on the podcast that, you know, that I interviewed that, um, you know, after, uh, after Barack Obama, you know, was inaugurated president and, and Rick Warren was there to, to give the invocation and, and pray for him. Um, you know, Mark said to this guy, he goes, that's, that's where I want to be. That's where I want to end up. Like he might have could have got that opportunity. Yeah, he was like, I want to be. I want people to think, you know, there's Doctor Phil, there's Oprah, and there's Pastor Mark. Like that's yeah. that's where I want to go. And and he and he said, you know, I think to get there, I, I need to grow the church to fifty thousand people. Um, and I do think there's, I do think, you know, you you look at the pieces, you look at the efficiency of the church at the end when it came to how they sort of had this master plan for acquiring property and this very. You know, they they really had created a franchise for the church, um, a model that was like about being franchised, about you know being duplicated. Um, so I, I think on that in that sense, it, it kind of could have worked. Um, but but again, when you when you look at the end from the beginning, part of what's so so weird about it is that when Mars Hill was planted, it was a really specific church for a really specific kind of person in a really specific place. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, uh, to me, that's also part of the, the like tragedy of Mars Hill was that there was something lost, I think over time as it became, uh, as it became about something other than these disenfranchised Christians in Seattle that mm-hmm. needed a different, a different way of doing church. I think, um, did go ahead. Toby. Well, I was just going to say too, I think, a lot of people don't realize, I'm, that's one of the reasons why I'm really glad you're doing this podcast. I think a lot of people can just, oh, it's just some church, then another pastor did something. You know, but I think having worked there and gone there and know so much about it, like what your podcast is opening up is that it, it, it's not easy just to shut it off. Like Mark Driscoll leaves town with his tail between his legs in a sense. That's what I would say. He probably wouldn't say it like that. But uh, And all the people are still there. They were on mission. They thought their money was going to change the world and what they were doing. And they believed in it. And that was their pastor and they had made connections. And all of a sudden now their church, you know, all the campuses broke up and got their own names and there's still the people there, but there's this void now of what you thought and what you had expected. And now this, and you find out, yeah, well, he did do some plagiarism. Wait, he was kind of abusive to people, or maybe he was very abusive to people. Maybe, you know, he didn't care. One of the audios you have is where he just, you know, two elders just let go. In the beginning, there was more people. What was the name of the guy that, uh, when we first started going there, it was Mark and some other people that had started the church, and then he got rid of them. Oh, yeah, Leaf. Leaf, yeah. Um, And those people just kind of got erased, and people just got erased. You know what I mean? It just didn't matter if you – and so if you were on the mission and you were believing in your church and all of a sudden your pastor leaves and you find out all this stuff, I mean, I think it it spun a lot of people into probably starting deconstructing their faith and mistrusting church 
in general. Well, they like, all came from smaller churches to get there, and they right. don't go back at yeah. that point because right. you, you know he's like, "Well, your church sucks. It was this namby pamby wuss church, so you're going to come here and go to our church right. as where things matter and it's good." Yeah. And then that falls apart. You, maybe you go back, but he might have pointed out what was wrong with their church correctly in the first place. You know what I'm saying? So, right. But either way, it's carnage in the wake. So. Yeah. Well, I, and I think it's exacerbated. Not to keep you know, beating this drum, but again, part of what you've bought into is not just like, I like the preaching and I like the music and I like, you know, whatever else, but because, because the, the, this idea of a, of a God given vision is held out as so front and center in the life of the church that, you know, when, when, uh, that when things fall apart, it, it becomes really hard to sort of make sense of, okay, well, if this was this God given vision, like where did it go? Like why did that? Why did it go away? Why did it? Why did it disappear? Mm-hmm. Um, did you find it uh, difficult to get people to talk, or were you able to get all the interviews you wanted? Uh, apart from Mark himself, obviously, maybe he would still get, give you one at some point. But did you find it easy or hard to get the people to, to tell all this? You know, it's it's been an interesting process. I mean, I think for the most part, um, because of the kind of passage of time, and because. For, for a lot of folks, they feel like their story wasn't well told or well represented. Uh, for the most part, people have been been pretty open to talking. Um, I would say like the mostly the folks who've wanted to to not or the most most of the folks who've declined have essentially said like that was a segment of my life that I've really tried to move on from. I've you know I've established a different career, I've established a different place, um, and so I just don't want to be associated with it if I don't have to. Uh, so I've, I've really tried to respect that. And then I would say the other sort of two examples are people who were specifically deeply, deeply hurt because of some situation have been slower to, to want to speak. Um, and some of those have, some of those are sort of wait and see on what the first few episodes are like. So we'll see if they show up later. Um, and then I think there are people who've been on kind of that deconstruction journey uh, who don't feel like airing out that laundry uh, right. for for criticism by a Christian audience. And I understand that as well. Was there a, it's very cool for Christianity Today to be involved and in that this yeah. is a mainstream Christian press that's kind of, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's like the way, I guess, journalism and politics work together is the same type of feel, I guess. But that feels good instead of just it being, you know, it, it seemed like in the past a lot of times Christian publications are just kind of in the tank for the church thing or something, and it's not enough real criticism or, or perspective giving, and that's one thing I think is terrific. Yeah, here. I totally agree. Just even having listened to the first episode, it feels like journalism and real and trustworthy, and so I, I appreciate that. Was there anything that, like, uh, having heard stories now and digging up uh, all this information, was there anything that was, like, shocking to you or heartbreaking that you hadn't heard where you, where, like, you were got emotional about or, or felt strongly? You know, I, I, I mean, the beats of the story, there, there weren't necessarily, you know, major plot twists for me just because I'd, I'd had friends connected with it and I'd heard a lot of this stuff in, in the past few years, uh, you know, just sort of told informally. I think what, what has surprised me, there, there are a few things that have, have surprised me. One is, you know, and there, there's an early episode that you'll hear where you hear from like the emergent guys that he was – you know, oh, yeah. hanging around with Brian McLaren in the nineties, uh, Doug Paget and yeah. um, Tim Condor and and some of them, and um, you know the affection those guys have for for him, um, and their reflections on kind of the friendship they had and all of that. I just found that to be uh, 
just a, a really interesting and beautiful thing, um, given, given, you know, how sharp the divide was by the mm -hmm. mark, you know, separated. Um, so I think that was surprising. And then I think, you know, there are a number of stories that, uh, emerge as, as, as we went along where you do see this deeply pastoral, deeply loving, self-sacrificing, even at times side of Mark that, um, that's a really, really important part of the story uh, because people experienced that and experienced it in a way that I think was authentic. And uh, it, it complicated those moments when you're going, I don't know, I don't know about this over here, but I experienced this and I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to square it. Where if you hadn't had that positive experience and you'd had one of these negative, you know, harsh encounters, that would have been a very easy moment to go. Yeah, I'm, I'm out of here. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, how about my tape? Did me and my tape gonna make it in the final? You're you're in there, man. I, I <laughs> All right. <laughs> Who's this redneck that got a lawyer? Good. I couldn't find anybody else. Good that Lord. From Seattle. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. guy. He wasn't near, nowhere near Seattle. So it, it, we're it, looking yeah. forward to the rest of it. Um, how, how, do you have any? I mean, timing issue or comment on or how does this relate to the stuff going down at Trinity now? I mean, it seems like it's like, I know you don't cover it all and that's not the point of this and doesn't need to, it can stand on its own. However, we're in amidst a, something else going on at, <clears throat> at Trinity. We haven't covered that on the podcast yet. So, um, or anything like that, but what's your understanding there? How's that fit in if at all? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, there's, there, there are folks who, watch Mark very, very closely and, and are, you know, writing regularly about kind of everything that comes out of Phoenix. And so knowing that even as much as, you know, six, eight months ago, we, as when we started working on the project, we kind of figured there, there, there'll be some buzz around that. We didn't know, obviously we couldn't have known that there would be as much news coming out of Phoenix as there is right now. So, you know, we have a, we have a news team at CT that's, you know, uh, that, that's, watching things and, and paying attention to kind of see what happens there. And um, we have, you know, the podcast itself really is about the church. I mean, that's, that's the reason we named it what it did. It, what we did is we, we want to tell the story as much as it's a story about Mark. It's also a story of the, the founding and the end of this institution um, that had such a, a massive impact. Um, and so for that reason, like Trinity wasn't part of the, the sort of plan for the podcast, but we, we already have some bonus episodes slated that are these side stories that oh, nice. as we go along. Um, and so it wouldn't surprise me if before all is said and done that we, we visit Trinity in one of those bonus episodes. But so Christianity Day has a news team on it and, and, and feels that it's an emerging story of interest, you know, like there's, it's more to come there. Well, I mean, we're, I'll just say we're, we're watching it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like we're watching it and you know, this, the stuff that's out of there is definitely is definitely worth watching. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if people if it, what's the brief overview of it. Any, I mean, I, I don't know if people are even that familiar with it. Um, I'm somewhat familiar with it, but I don't want to just leave it hanging here. But there's problems going on there now, and there's people leaving. I'm involved in a group of, or, or I'm in a Facebook group and have some conversations with different people um, who are. It's really bizarre because you see people being in the spot that you were in a, a certain amount of time ago, and you can see them processing it in real time, and you're like, oh. 
oh shit, like that. That's how I, you know, you can see them, and they're and they're they're having uh, relationships cut off and stuff, and having to leave community groups where people are in and out, and all this. The same dynamics seem to be emerging there, and I don't know the whole controversy or what's behind it or what will come out or to what level, but it certainly seems like they've got some real. Um, it seems like a, a one more level of control and loyalty cult likeiness like the same dynamics but one more one more level ramped up and there's people waking up to that that were somewhat central in you know in the security or you know people involved deeply are now and they're speaking publicly i think as you know like the one kid who does it that was that's you know the center of it he is youtubing and stuff and i was thinking man this is so much different than last time last time almost nobody would say anything and now you have a bunch of people and their screenshots are a thing now and like the way people set report online is different now but in 2014 and stuff it wasn't it was like nobody you felt like you're being some terrible person to share mm -hmm. your even to share or gossip or set comment but now the stuff's gonna is kind of coming out and it's kind of coming out different a little bit this time so i think it's quite interesting what what will happen there and i do feel really bad but they're the two groups are connecting mars hill people and people that are leaving that church who used to think Mar the whole time they've been there they've been told mars hill was this terrible place that did that to him mm -hmm. and now they're coming out of that church and uniting with old mars hill people so that's a kind of a beautiful thing because there's people who have been through that that this community's like been able to reach out to and so there's a beautiful thing happening there that i think is very cool yeah i i think part of it too i, th I think there's there's been a culture change where um, questioning and, and being critical of uh, spiritual authority looks different now than it did seven years ago. Mm -hmm. There's there's just been enough of these stories where the the culture of suspicion around them is a lot stronger. Um, and then I would say with 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 Mark in particular, you have sort of a built in uh, you know a built in platform from you know bloggers and 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 certain journalists. Mm -hmm who are sort of eager, eagerly covering whatever comes out of there. And so it's, yeah. you're, there's an accelerated process. Cause I think with, with Mars Hill, it, it took quite a few years for the, you know, for people to start sort of paying close attention and, and, uh, and, and giving a lot of scrutiny to what was coming out of Seattle. I think too, I mean, just having grown up in the South, everybody in the South goes, yeah, but those Seattle people always heard they're bad They're liberals and Democrats and they do this and that, you know, now you're in Arizona, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're getting a little bit closer to something and people are like, oh, well, I mean, in the second time, everybody's you like, hold on. Arizona people you know are I mean? it's all hot, I mean, you know how it, they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, I wonder, he is so smart and so talented that he is assessing right now his next moves and will probably make the accurate decision. But I don't know if I could believe, like if he came out and made a huge public apology this time and said, I am committed to changing. And I don't know if I would believe it. I don't, I don't know. Like I, cause he's so smart that he's going to choose the right thing, but that just is the right thing for him or his brand in a way. I do wonder like, cause the, even this stuff, like, so the, you know, it's like the kids going after him because that kid dated Mark's daughter or something, right? And then supposedly they, they kissed or didn't or something, and Mark got rid of him and his family, and people are leaving and stuff. But So there's just all this stuff, but there's certainly some dads out there that are going to go, yeah, well, if that guy tried to kiss my daughter, I'd do the same as Mark. And, you know, there's going to be supporters no matter what, so he will have a base to always build off on because he's, he's like Trump does. I mean, Trump could say anything, and some people, yeah, grandma's out there that, you know, wash your mouth out with soap. We're cheering him on. I mean, 
Uh, that, that's really crazy. I think you even talked about it in the first episode a little bit that Driscoll was almost like the the precursor to Trump for evangelicals, which I thought was such a fascinating thought. He primed everybody for, oh wait, we are we need a little bit tougher. We need, you know we need we need somebody that's a little bit tougher and stands up for us instead of these wimps. And you know Trump, he pretended to be the strong man. You know what I mean? And that's what people want. Oh. Well, I mean, what's interesting, what's in the what's in the first episode is is actually it's John MacArthur saying that about this, oh, and it's a crazy, right. you know, MacArthur, yes. MacArthur was kind of horrified at the rise of Trump in 2016, and and so he saw it as this, you know, this negative thing at, at the time. Funnily enough, you know, 2020 comes around, and and MacArthur is one of the the loud evangelical supporters for Trump, um, uh, but to my knowledge, he hasn't yet come around on on mark so we'll see if that ever happens (laughs) crazy crazy well this is great we really appreciate the the talk today um you know there's probably more to talk about in time this topic i don't know if people think we talk about this too much or not near enough given the amount that there is to talk about and how much it has informed our journey and seems to be relevant so to me it's an inexhaustible topic and it could be covered from many points of view um but it's great to already see this one going so you feel like it could have been a movie or you could do something you got bonus episodes i mean it's like it's just super fundamental of how where we're at in 2021 to analyze our systems our the involvement with power uh what it means to hold power accountable to think to its own self and how we participate in the, you know the, the territory just seems so rich with all that's going on and then the loss of uh confidence in what we've always perceived are safe or strong leaders and in institutions schools churches police government it, it all feels real similar to me and, and i'll say this too and you know i don't want to blow too much smoke up your ass but you are doing what i would say the right work. Now, you have all your own faults. So do we. Others. Mark Driscoll has a ton of faults and a ton of good. I'm glad that you're showing both sides of him, That, that like affairs. You're trying to make it as balanced as you can. But I do believe that this is something artistic, and you are storytelling, which is the whole Bible. We got we got away from it. We got we got we got rid of storytelling or something. Like everybody got scared. And you're right. It's, it's all about brands and protecting your brand on stuff. Like you are storytelling. That's what is so important and missing to me. Oftentimes in the church is it's just how to be a better Christian. How to do this. If you read this or this list or do, you know like wait a minute. Let's just tell some stories. All their faults. The people in the Bible were wild. They were crazy. They were getting stuff all. I mean it's all laid out there. You know what I mean it's it bizarre at times and so that's what I think is really I really appreciate and it reminds me more of like the Bible in a sense I'm not saying you, you're writing the Bible or a podcast is the new Bible but it does, it is meaningful that the storytelling is back like I'm glad that Christianity today is doing this I just tell the story and then mm-hmm. then, I, then then there's something I can glean from it I can learn from it. I can see Christ in it you know, I can see forgiveness maybe even or, or joy or what not to do next time. Or, you know, all those things are just so important. I love the artistic nature of this, the creative aspect of it, the documentary, you know, documenting and, and telling the stories of it is just really valuable. So we, I really do appreciate you doing this, taking the time to do it. Episode one is out when? Uh, tomorrow. Uh, we're, we're recording this on the 21st. It's out on the- This is Monday. So it came out yesterday. So it's out now. Yeah, because we'll put this out. This will be Wednesday when people are hearing this. We're Monday right now. So um, it's out now. Thank you for sending us early. It's the rise and fall of Mars Hill from Christianity Today. Uh, Michael Cosper is the your credits are what writer, producer, uh, interviewer. 
on yeah. that. Yeah, producer, writer, editor. So editor, yeah, yeah. So it's your, it's your whole vision, and you've yeah. got ground level experience <laughs> with both meet and Mark, and have been through Parallel. So you know, we're we're big fans over here, and I hope everybody will check it out. And uh, we'll, there'll be more to talk about in this territory for us and and you in the future. So you know, feels good to be out there in new media territory doing things like you know, it feels feels good. Yeah, Thanks. yeah, maybe, uh, maybe when the series is over, I can come back and you can tell me what I screwed up. So. Yeah, or what, 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 say, what yeah. other series that should be made in addition, more like. But yeah, cool. we'd love to have you back and just see the the response and what you you know what you learned. Like it, maybe there is a, a somebody that goes, "Hey, I heard a few episodes. Let me say, you know that, that'll be interesting." So yeah, we'd love to have you back, Mark. Get on with <laughs> yeah. Mike. Schedule one. You can do it. Were you scared? Yeah, you, you scared? do chicken to do an interview. You can't do one interview. I've seen you handle Deepak Chopra. Why don't you go talk to Mike? <laughs> Come on. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm no Deepak Chopra. <laughs> I was in the room for that. I was loving it. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. Thanks, guys. That was great. I'm excited. I'm telling you, the first episode is great. I'm going to listen to every episode, and I think a lot of people should because I, I do think there is a growing mistrust of the church. I don't like that. That's not what I want. That's not awesome. my goal. Isn't to mistrust yeah, thank each you. other because the church is the people, not the building. But I, I'm glad there is finally a little bit of mistrust about the system. I mean, the system sets up pastors a lot to fail too. I mean, they do. I mean, and the people, me. I want. I was pro Mark Driscoll brand. I was. I, I mean, I got to sit in the room when Dateline was there interviewing. Mm-hmm. And I was going, "Whoa, this is wow. This is pretty serious." You know. You know. I mean, you don't realize it's happening in the moment, but you do want that. It is easy to go. Oh, this church is growing and growing and growing. It must be God called. You know, and all that stuff. So, I, I mean, it's going to be uh, fascinating to hear some of the stories and the audio. The, the even the it's, audio it's just, just in the first great, episode. It's a great. maintain. There's a more of a mainstream appetite that is undeniable now for stuff yeah. that I mean, frankly, we, we've been talking about for a long time. But I don't. You know, right. I'm not here to say I told. You know, been trying. It's just we were some of the fir- earlier people willing to seem like we shouldn't have been talking like that. Yeah. But now it's. But there's more people will do that now. And there's of course there's the negative stuff, but. It's not about trashing people, but there's a more of a mainstream appetite to look to take a healthy look at the systems we participate in. Cause you, I mean, you know, your other systems you participate in are fucked up too. It's just a matter of how much and how much are you participating, and where would you collectively draw a line? Those are just things to internalize. When would I actually have a problem? At what point would me and these other people right. take action or not go along with this? That doesn't mean you have to. Everything sucks well, and everybody's bad and sure it doesn't mean any of that. Just but your part in it, you had to get, you had to take yeah. responsibility. If the mainstream's doing that in Christianity today, that's great. I will even say this: I mean, there's more religion now than there ever has been. Well, that's and, a scary and, thing. Yeah. I mean, and so this is a prime example of what you need to. I, I'm telling you, I can't believe how often I open up Twitter or. Uh, see something on Facebook or on, on news media or whatever. That's exactly what uh, pastors told me when I was young. Yeah, and well, it was it was condemning, more ruthless and it than was these it guys. was scary, and it wasn't good. And there is religion now that says believe or else. Yeah, believe or you are evil. Believe or you are not one of us. Believe, be on our team. The other team is bad. You know, I mean, I mean that's happening more and yeah. more with all kinds of stuff. And I mean the the language, the religiosity of it is scary, and yeah. so. 
this is a great uh, great podcast to listen to just because you, you're going to be able to see that in this system. I mean, Mark Driscoll probably would have been an unbelievably successful CEO of any company. You know what I mean? Like he would have, he, he would, have, he was going to have success. There's people that are smart and brilliant and hardworking and driven and focused, and they're going to succeed. They're going to show you results, like we were saying. So it's everywhere. It's not just the church, but the church is supposed to be compassionate. It's supposed to be Christ-like. It's supposed to be forgiving. It's supposed to be welcoming and open, and maybe able to change our minds when the time is required. Like you know, God did. He changed yeah. his mind sometimes. And people say yeah. he never did. No, he did. It's in the Bible. Go look it up. And so I'm, I'm changing my mind, and that's okay. I'm not changing my mind to become worse or evil. I'm trying to change my mind to be more loving. And, and figure that that out, and so that's what I think this is important. Uh, just to say, oh wait, those people in Seattle were hurt. Wait, why did that happen? They, they, oh, everybody wasn't about what. Maybe the system is kind of wrecked. You know, I don't, I don't want it to be like you just said. I don't want our our podcast ever again to only just be you know uh, shitting on the church or saying it's not worth it. I know that you, somebody listening right now, goes to church and has gotten a lot out of. It. I did. My life was changed for the better because of some of Mark Driscoll's sermons. I promise you, it was. Now. Some bad, other bad stuff, and that, that stuff has to be talked about, too. That's the only way you're going to be balanced. Yeah, it's just a beware of any narrativizing entity. Yeah. You know what I mean? You see a lot of churches. It's like, yes. what's the story of this church? I don't know. He preaches, and we go there. I don't know. Right. But, the, you know, like the right. something, a conspiracy theory or a, a, a person, a charismatic person or a story of a movement. You know, any organized entity that is narrativizing about itself is yeah. – you, you know, even all the way down to the individual, you know, you ever get in the orbit of a person yeah. who's always narrativizing what is happening right now to them and has happened to the, making, you know, that whole thing. Right. Beware of that. <laughs> so. I, I would say beware of this, too. Anybody that tells you they have a calling from God, I just be wary. You know, <laughs> and, and, and if they do test it, how about don't pay a pastor for 15 years? <laughs> if it's a calling, they'll figure it out. Right. God, I mean. It, God didn't give uh, Moses a uh, uh, salary and uh, benefits, did he? When he said, hey, you got to go set my people free. He didn't, I mean, Jesus didn't get benefits and a salary to go to earth. What What are we doing here? Why, why does everybody have to be so taken care of like that? I mean, make sure your pastor has some food on the table. Make sure, but, <laughs> but let them use the calling. If it's a calling, then it's going to prevail. Not, oh man, my life's so good. Because I'm making one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, and our church is four thousand people, and, and probably more than that, probably four or five hundred thousand dollars a year. But I'm just saying, all the stuff you just have to question it. That doesn't mean it's evil or bad, but it could be. At just, what point? Just think would about you, it. Though is really more work. Like at what point would not if it's yes or no? Yeah. It's just at what point of unhealth would I act differently than current? Is right. the question. Right. Well, enjoyed it. So yep. it's uh. That podcast is out, and as we speak, we're taping Emory's new record, so stay tuned for some clips, things about it, reports from it, how if it was a big success or a big failure, I don't know. But I say success. We shall see. See ya.